mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. Following up on Dennis's prayer for Uvalde and the people there, I was thinking a bit about that uh, as I was studying throughout the week because of the text that we're in, in, in Mark. And I, I was just thinking about how horrible that situation uh, is and must have been for those there and um, thinking about how egregious a thing it was and is and how it could be possible that someone could actually uh, do these kind of things, thinking about what must the environment have been for this young man to be able to come to the place in his life where he was willing to do what he did is difficult to comprehend. Uh, it's just a, a sad, sad situation. I hope you've been praying for, for that community. 
the questions that we have about what would cause a person to do such things, um, either there or in any other place of significant disaster, is answered in our text today. Jesus answers the question, how could someone do such an egregious thing? Mark chapter 7 is our text. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there. And Jesus answers this important but difficult question that we're asking about these kind of heinous sins and crimes. Jesus answers those questions clearly. What we're going to discover this morning is that the chaos of sin has only one source and only one solution. There's one source for these kinds of sins, and there's only one solution to the chaos that these kinds of sins create. Before we get into the text exactly, verses 14 through 23, I'll read those to you in a minute, but I want to give you the setting in which these verses came to be. Remember that Jesus had just fed 5,000 is the title, but closer to 25,000 people. Just got through that very night walking on water out to his stressed disciples fighting a storm at sea. And then the next day confronted with the hypocritical and legalistic Pharisees and scribes that came from Jerusalem to confront him. They came from Jerusalem to Galilee to confront Jesus about his disciples not properly washing their hands of all things. Remember that it wasn't that they didn't wash their hands, it's that they didn't wash their hands correctly. There was a particular method that was required of all Jews, um, required of course not by God but by tradition. And so the scribes took this opportunity, Pharisees uh, took this opportunity to what they thought would be the nailing of Jesus, getting him for good. Because if you break the law, we know that lawbreakers in Old Testament times were uh, up for execution, which is what they wanted. We learned that in Mark chapter 3. They did everything they could to set up the circumstances that required the death penalty for Jesus. So when we come to verse 6 in Mark 7, 6 through 13, what Jesus does when he's confronted by these hypocritical, legalistic, hand-washing religious leaders is he totally exposes and unmasks their hypocrisy down to its core. You remember that he used the example of Corbin. Corbin was a Hebrew word that meant devoted to God, and, and these religious leaders, and not just them, but all, many of their followers, claimed Corbin over their money. It was devoted to God, hence they couldn't give it to you if you needed help, or to their parents, or to the community, or even to the temple, because it was devoted to God. I'm so spiritual, mom and dad, you're going to have to go to my siblings who are less spiritual to get money for the help you need. That was literally what they were saying. And Jesus exposed that hypocrisy to its core 
and then went further into his explanation of the subject of true faith, of, of understanding where true and real defilement came from into the text that we are today. So there's the setting. You understand how now Jesus is getting to this place in his teaching in Mark chapter 7, where he basically teaches on the source of defilement, the source of sin, the source of egregious, horrible criminal sin. So let's, let's look at the text, and I'll read it to you, and then I'll try to unpack it for you. Verse 14 begins, And he called, that is, Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of the person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters in, not into his heart but his stomach and then is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, William Barclay, the great uh, preacher and commentator, calls this, and this is a quote, well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. That's interesting take on this, isn't it? At least. <laughs> well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. Why would he say such a grandiose thing. I can think of a few other passages that I would put in that category. I'm not sure I would land here. Why would William Barclay, the renowned commentator, say such things? Well, let's find out. First of all, I want to show you from Jesus' teaching the source of sinful chaos, and then secondly, the solution to sinful chaos. But let's begin with the source. Jesus' teaching is not complicated here. We admit that there are some more complicated things that Jesus taught in the New Testament, but this isn't one of them. This is cut and dry. This is pretty clear. It really doesn't need much explanation from me. What I simply need to do here is restate what Jesus said and then emphasize the importance of understanding this issue in our day. Is it important for you sitting here today in the 21st century to understand these words? Most definitely, for certain. Remember what Jesus said in verse 14, hear me, all of you, and understand. Whenever Jesus, whenever God says, pay attention, some importance coming. And this is exactly what Jesus said here. Pay attention, I'm gonna say something really important. So confusion about the origin of sin in our own lives results in missing the solution to chaos. Let me say that again. Confusion about the origin of sin in our own lives results in missing the solution to the chaos of that sin that is found only in Jesus Christ. 
In other words, if you don't get Jesus' teaching here, you'll never get past your sin and the chaos that's caused by your sin. We must get this right, in other words. Barclay may be on to something. So knowing the origin of sin in our lives keeps us from looking from false solutions. And we always look for false solutions to the chaos of sin in our lives. It might be a better diet, more yoga, less yoga, more weightlifting, more vacations, more money. And all these things that we put forth as possible solutions to the chaos of sin in our lives. Knowing the origin of our sin and the chaos that comes from that sin is key to bypassing all those false solutions that are offered out there. And not only for ourselves, but for those we love, particularly our children. In other words, when your child sins or when you sin, you don't need to trace their steps or your steps back and try to dig up the person or thing that wrongly influenced me or my kids to discover what it was that caused my chaos. Jesus simply says this, look no further than your own heart. Jesus is saying it's not on the outside. Newsflash, it's not on the outside. This doesn't seem so revolutionary to us, does it? Well, put yourself in the first century Jews' shoes. This is all they had ever been taught. This is all they ever knew, which is why it was so shocking, which is why Barclay can say it's so revolutionary. They had not heard these type of things before. This was a radical change in teaching for the first century Jew. And although we're not Jewish, we still have a hard time accepting the teaching that lays the blame for my sinful condition at my feet and not my neighbors or my environment, etc. We don't want to hear that, do we? We want to be able to blame something other than that person looking back at us in the mirror. This was a radical change, in fact. It's so much easier to blame our environment, isn't it? Or our education, or the bad examples in our lives. Well, I don't go to church anymore because of the elder that was in that church did this, or the pastor did that, or, and on and on it goes. Um, trying to keep our pride intact, we look for scapegoats every time we sin. Why did I say that? Well, I was tired. I had a little bit too much to drink. Well, did you hear what they said? It keeps going. I, I think all of us can relate to this. Uh, we, we all look for those scapegoats, don't we? If I hadn't been so tired, honey, I wouldn't have said that. If that guy wouldn't have cut me off in traffic, I wouldn't have flipped him off you know, etc. I wasn't being myself. No, actually you were. The occasion just let the filters go, didn't it? That's the case with all of us. This is Jesus' point. It's not on the outside. Jesus' words were a very difficult teaching for every Jew. His disciples wanted clarification of the teaching. They said, what, what did you mean by this parable? Even in the question, they revealed the, the darkness of their heart. It wasn't a parable. 
Jesus said it's not from the outside, it's from the inside. Oh, explain to us the mystery here, Jesus. No, it wasn't mysterious. It wasn't a parable. It was didactic teaching. It was the truth, so raw that they pretended it was a parable. And this, of course, was because of their upbringing. It didn't register. They had never been taught this before. They, they simply thought that if I check the boxes, cross my T's, dot my I's, no matter what my heart and mind is, it's, I'm fine. This is what all the religious leaders did. Why can't we? So Jesus had to unpack it more carefully for them in verses 18 through 23, and the Holy Spirit recorded it, thankfully, through the pen of Mark for our benefit. Because the human race remains the same, don't we? These problems seem to (laughs) recur in the human race. We must understand, I think, first and foremost through this teaching that human beings aren't basically good. In spite of what you think of your grandchildren, Human beings aren't basically good. To say he's a good man is fine, but it's never technically true, is it? No. When someone asks, how are you? A common response is, oh, I'm good. Uh, We know what each other means when we answer like that, but is it true? I remember a while ago when I asked a young girl at Sun Valley Church if she was good, her reply was this, I'm not good, Pastor John. I'm a sinner at heart, but God is changing me. I think this girl was seven or eight. At least she was listening. (laughs) We all, as sinners, don't want to take responsibility for our sins, so we blame other things. We blame other people. We blame our parents. We blame our teachers. We blame our pastors. We blame our environment. We blame, blame, blame. Um, We work hard at trying to figure out where our children learn this. How could this be? Look at this wonderful home. Look at the godly examples we are to our children and look at their hearts. Well, the Bible clearly explains the problem here in other places besides here in Mark 7. For example, Romans 3.23, Paul says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Evidently, this is a common trait to humanity. King David also addresses the problem in the Old Testament, Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born a sinner. In spite of how cute he must have been, he was born a sinner. You see, the whole Bible makes it clear that our sin problem isn't outside of us, but inside of us. Jeremiah, the prophet, has the gall to say this. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, if you're going to get offended, get offended at that. That's offensive. You telling me my heart, my inner self, the essence of my being is rotten? That's what Jeremiah said. I don't like that guy. What does Jesus teach here? What is he saying? He's saying it's not from the outside. Our sin and its chaos does not come from the outside. It comes from inside. 
the heart, inside the mind. <laughs> we don't do what we do because of external influences. Acknowledging personal responsibility for sin is an early step in the gospel that must be taken if we are going to experience God's solution to the chaos that sin causes. You want to move away from the chaos that sin causes in your life? One of the first steps of the gospel is this. Acknowledge your responsibility for your sin. If one refuses to do such things, Forgiveness does not come, and the chaos continues. Even though modern psychology has put a large dent in the personal responsibility for sin conversation, rejection of personal responsibility isn't something new. Let me tell you something. You remember where blame shifting began? Yeah, the Garden of Eden. Is that early enough in human history for you? Yeah. You remember how Adam answered God and explained his sin? I've tried this numerous times. The, the woman you gave me. Adam not only blamed his wife, but he blamed God. The woman you gave me is my problem. <laughs> of course, Eve wasn't so stellar either. She said the devil made me do it. <laughs> Didn't she? It was the snake. It wasn't me. How could it be me? Look at me. <laughs> What's there not to like, right? Kind of attitude. Our greatest sin, friends, is is when we struggle with taking personal responsibility for our sin. The Jews in Jesus' day were the same. They were confused about the origins of corruption, the origins of defilement, and what defiled and what didn't. They were shocked to hear, that, to hear Jesus suggest that moral corruption came from within each of them, not from external influences like not washing your hands correctly, Because of this approach to religion and God, Judaism was marked by massive hypocrisy and superficiality. But to guard against pointing at the Jews and shaking our heads in amazement, let's look closely at our own view of sin. What's your excuse for your sin, in other words? In these verses, Jesus explained how external things are not the cause or root of our sin problem. Our sin problems originate in our own person, the heart, the inner being. And this, of course, includes our attitudes, our affections, our priorities, our ambitions, our desires, all rooted in selfish pride. Jesus' point was that as much as we'd like to blame our sin or, or the sins of our kids on something other than ourselves or them, sin does not happen because we ate with defiled hands or spent time with other sinful people or read the wrong books or were influenced by some ungodly environment. That's not where sin comes from. 
You can lock yourself in a closet or in a monastery and you'll still struggle with sin. You can take your kids to the most isolated places on the planet and they still will be sinful and treat each other horribly. <laughs> Let's take Cain, for example. Pretty isolated, I would say. Not a lot of negative influence from his school buddies. He's the only kid on the planet for a while, and then his brother comes along, and guess what? He kills him. Well, what was wrong with his education? It must have been bad examples. Maybe it was his environment. No. It was the core of his being. He was a sinner through and through. So what makes you sin? Are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? Which is it? The Bible is clear. Jesus' teaching says you sin because you're a sinner in your core. This is the human problem. In verses 21 and 22, I want you to look down into your Bible. Mark 7, 21 and 22. <clears throat> look at this list that Jesus gives to specific sins. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. There's a list for you. Where does that come from? Not the movies you watch. Not the things you read. It boils out of your heart, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus gave this list because those listing were legalist, superficial, and were going to blame shift. Well, may, maybe the murder one. Maybe the, the, the kid in Uvalde, Texas did this because of his horrible environment. Because he was reading all the wrong books. No. It was because of his dark heart. It's the same reason you and I sin. 100%, Jesus says, of the things on this list come from within. These are the things that defile and condemn. G.C. Ryle was an 18th century preacher and commentator, and he wrote this. The wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, peculiar temptations, or the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run us into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. Listen to that. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. I could never do that. Oh, just wait. Wait for the right opportunity. Let us distinctly understand when we read these words, that is the words of Christ, that our Lord is speaking of the human heart generally. He is not speaking only of the notorious profligate 
or the prisoner in jail. He is speaking of all mankind, all of us, whether high, low, rich, poor, masters or servants, old or young, learned or unlearned, all of us have by nature such a heart as Jesus here describes. The seeds of all evils here mentioned lie within, lie hid within all of us. They may lie dormant all of our lives. They may be kept down by fear of consequences, the restraint of public opinion, the dread of discovery, the desire to be thought respectable, and above all, by the almighty grace of God. But every man has within him the root of every sin. Have you ever caught yourself saying, I would never do something like that? Pride comes before a fall. What's the solution to this inward problem? It seems insurmountable, doesn't it? Well, what is it? Thanks be to God, there is one. Let's look at it. The solution to sinful chaos. If this teaching of Jesus doesn't immediately humble us, we remain stuck in our legalism, stuck in our pride. This teaching should humble every person in the room. Wait a minute, I'm capable of this. We remain outside of God's grace if that's our attitude. But as we are humbled by Jesus' teaching, we can see and be thankful for the gospel. The gospel contains the only solution to chaos and the sin that caused it. Notice the word here, little Bible study tip, in these few verses, the word defile, it shows up five times. If you have a marking utensil in your hand, underline it. This is how you study the Bible. If there's a word repeated, it's important. Jesus is telling us how we're defiled. He's interested in undoing all the false ideas about what pleases God and how corruption is part of and affects every area of our life. He was teaching on the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity is an important doctrine to those of us who embrace a biblical theology. Total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be. It means that sin has affected every part of your being. You are totally, totally affected by sin in every area of your life. Spiritual, mental, physical, etc., etc. The list goes on throughout whatever we experience. Sin affects us. We're totally depraved. So the, the solution to sinful chaos is not external. <laughs> if our sin is an external, then the solution can't be external. It's got to affect the heart. It's got to be internal. It can't be our efforts. It's not our efforts. The solution to chaos of sin and corruption isn't through external rituals, religious ceremonies like hand-washing church attendance or making sacrifices, no matter how great you make. No. True religion, a true relationship with God is a heart issue. It's an internal issue. It must be dealt with from within. No external remedies will do which is why every external remedy you've tried has failed. Blaming our environment, education, or examples 
won't do. You may fool those you're talking to, but you don't fool yourself or God. As important and significant as environment, education, and examples are, they neither explain the problem nor provide the solution. Our sin can't be alleviated by adjusting our environment, education, or example around us. You don't sin because of your environment. You don't sin because of your education. You don't, you don't sin because of poor examples in your life. You sin because you have a sinful heart is the core of Jesus' teaching. So we are born as slaves to sin. It's in our DNA. When you come out crying, you're a sinner. I would argue <laughs> when you became a human being in womb, you're a sinner. Remember what David said? In sin, my mother conceived me. Way back then is when I became a sinner. Sounds hopeless, doesn't it? So what is the solution? It can't be our external efforts. It's got to be the internal work of God. That's our only hope. Is the internal work of God. There's only one solution to the chaos of sin, and it isn't taking a bath. It isn't being a philanthropist. There must be a radical solution if our hearts will ever be fixed from its radical problem. And the answer, thankfully, is revealed in Scripture. The answer is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who is teaching on this subject is the answer, is the solution. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There must be a rebirth, a spiritual renewal, a, a change of heart. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. There must be a regeneration of the heart. Jesus in John 6, 28, listen to how he answers these people who are asking them what they must do to be saved. Then they said, the crowd said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What is the solution to our chaos and sin? Jesus answered them this is the work of God, now pay attention, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The solution to chaos is to believe in, to embrace the one that God the Father sent into the world to save us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Remember what Paul told the Philippian jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from sin and its chaos. Embracing Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the only solution to our sinful chaos. Jesus himself says, embracing me is the only solution to sin and its chaos. I am the way, John 14, 6, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The solution to our sinful chaos isn't more gun laws, better education, prayer in schools, reversing Roe versus Wade, or a different person in the White House. 
If you think that you can deal with humanity's sin problem by external means, you've missed Jesus' teaching completely. If you think that you can avoid your children from manifesting their sin nature by strict discipline, educational choices, or by restricting their social media, all of which should be very intentional about, you should be intentional about, then you've missed the point of Jesus' teaching. We must have a divine heart surgery. We need a spiritual heart transplant. This is what God said through the, through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25 and 20, through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Remember, God is speaking. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now listen, I will give you a new heart. In other words, I'll replace the old one. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's an Old Testament version of Mark 7. And how clear is it? There is only one surgeon that performs this kind of surgery. And it's God himself, and here's how it looks. We begin to recognize the holiness of God at some point. And then, because of our recognition of the holiness of God, we acknowledge the personal responsibility of our own sin and the associated chaos. So we see the holiness of God, and that reveals the darkness of our sin and our hardened heart. And then, after we've embraced our personal responsibility of sin, we turn from ourselves to embrace the solution from heaven, Jesus Christ, the one who came to resolve, to solve our sin and its associated chaos. We embrace Jesus Christ. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what heart surgery looks like in the Bible. What's it mean to embrace the solution of Jesus Christ and his work for us? Listen, just for one more minute. As God-man, he lived a perfect life. He came from heaven as God and continued to be God as a human being. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he lived a sinless life, and he credits that, that righteousness, that required sinlessness, to anybody who will come to him and simply believe. Then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for all of us who have offended his righteousness. All of us who have participated in the sin of humanity. He died to pay that penalty. The wages of sin is what? Death. And Jesus paid that death for anybody who will simply believe. Put their faith and trust in this one from heaven instead of the solutions that are surrounding us. And then he rose again to demonstrate victory over the sin that entangles us so much and the death that comes with that sin. And all who believe this and embrace Jesus Christ 
will fall into the category of those who are in Christ. Those who have been regenerated by Christ. Those who have been born again by the Spirit. And if you believe this, what should your response be? First, you should tell God and thank him for the glorious gift of grace in Christ Jesus. And then you should tell everybody that you love and everybody that you live by about the same thing. This is why you're here remaining on the planet, is to be a herald of this good news, that there is, there is a solution to what happened in Nuvalde. There's a solution to what happened with your neighbor last week. There's a solution to the marriage problems with your spouse. There's a solution to our sinful children. One solution. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we hear your teaching. It humbles us. It shakes us to our core. Knowing that as we look for the problems in this world, we, we look inward and see it in the mirror. We are the problem. Our hearts are deceitful and exceedingly wicked. But because of your son, Jesus Christ, Father, we can know forgiveness of sin. We can know regeneration of soul. We can know a renewal of our heart. We can have this divine heart surgery which resolves our sin, which redeems our souls. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has yet to acknowledge their sin and, and turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin this divine spiritual heart surgery immediately, that you would begin to expose to them the holiness of our Father in heaven, the righteousness of God, our, our Savior. And then, Spirit, I pray you would continue the surgery by revealing the person and work of Jesus Christ to these needy souls. For us who have embraced you, Jesus, I, I pray that we would return to this fountain of grace daily, that we would not forget and be trapped by worldly options, worldly suggestions to our sin, but that we'd re we would return to this fount, the only source, the only solution to our sin and chaos. That we would acknowledge our need for him, that we would embrace him anew every morning and confess our sins repeatedly every night so that we might walk circumspectly daily, becoming more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.